Well, hello. What do you think about when you hear the word confession? Something I thought of was a story I heard one time about Father New and Father Old. Father New was brand new to the parish, brand new to hearing confessions, and so he asked Father Old to do a ride-along for the first few, just to be able to give him feedback or pointers. So uh, after a couple of sessions, Father Old says, why don't, why don't we take a break and um, let's debrief for a minute? So they step out and uh, the old priest suggests, uh, why, don't, why don't you try crossing your arms across your chest and then maybe, uh, you know, rub your chin with one hand sometimes. So Father New does this. Father Old then says, okay, now try saying things like, yes, go on. Ah, I see. I understand. Maybe even... How did you feel about that? So Father New repeats those phrases while crossing his arms and stroking his chin. And they agree that that all sounds pretty good. And Father Old says, Father Old says, now don't you think that sounds better than slapping your knee and saying, dude, no way, what happened next? Now, that's not what I think confession is really about. And scripture doesn't point to that points to some pretty different pictures. So today's sermon is titled, Confession, Agreeing with God. So here's the big idea, that confession is primarily about aligning our understanding of ourselves and our motives and our behavior with God. It's relational with God before it's anything else. And we're gonna start that by looking at the relationship as described in Psalm 32. So. Open a Bible if you have one, whether it's on paper or in an app. I will show the verses uh, on the screen. But before we even get started, we look at the psalm and it starts with two, two little comments of David and a Amaskil. So notice uh, that it says of David. So it's attributing this psalm to David as its writer. Now, if you look at the psalm itself, which we'll get to in a moment, you'll notice that it's indented. It's not flowed like a normal paragraph. And that's because the translators looked at it and said, based on its content, uh, we can see that this is a poem or a song. And so we're going to lay it out like one. The other way that we would know that is that it is in the book of Psalms. And Psalms is the songbook of the nation of Israel. So if it's in Psalms, it's likely a song. Uh, the second thing that you see, this amaskil, is a phrase that's a little more mysterious. Uh, we believe that it's a category of the songs or poetry that the, the Hebrews were normally writing. But what we don't know is exactly what it means. The most plausible thing, or at least the most adamantly said thing that I've heard, is it's for instructional songs. But... Others debate this. So just know that it's designating a particular type of song and that there's intentionality in how the original readers, hearers, singers of these songs went about it. All right. This song is about confession, about confessing sin. It's not the only one. It's one of a number of them. So there's Psalm 6. There's this one, Psalm 32. There's also Psalm 38. Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. All right, Psalm 32, let's read verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one 
and already I have to stomp us because there's a whole different word that gets used for blessed and it means blessed. This one can mean that, but it has the sense it's hopped up a little bit. It's happy. Um, I'd skip, but uh, I've, I've got tendonitis. So happy is the one, I'm already changing it, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. So following Christ isn't about being happy all the time. What it is, though, is about uh, experiencing relationship with God. And these verses are about how relationship with God can be one of the things that brings about happiness. Those whose sin doesn't get in the way of relationship with God, they're often happy. Those who break God's laws unintentionally or intentionally, well, that's all of us, right? There's not a single one of us, not me, not you, not anybody except Jesus, who's ever lived a sinless life, who goes through a day really without committing some kind of sin. But I can say that with a smile on my face because God can forgive my chata'a, my sins. He can forgive my pesha, my rebellions. He can cover what I can't bear to look at and he can take care of it in a way that's proper when I come to him telling him the truth. So God already knows your sin, but he is able and he's willing to forgive your sin. This song that David is writing says God knows and forgives sin. It's a communication of God's power, of God's intent. God already knows the sin, but he's got the willingness. He's got the ability. He can forgive your sin. And the song is going to tell us next how not to get your sin forgiven. Verses three and four, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Coming out of heat waves and smoky air, oh, I'm feeling that. It's such a picture, a picture of a body thinning down and weakened and groaning. Ah, why? Because I kept silent. Because... Well, they say you're only as sick as your secrets. And the psalmist is saying, I, I, I didn't want to speak up about my sin. That's what these verses are talking about. Is it a sense of guilt? Well, it doesn't say that. It says God's hand was heavy. Sin isn't good for us. And God allows the weight of our sin to be felt. Ah, I almost think there have been times in my life when it took me so long to recognize how heavy God's hand was on me in terms of uh, ongoing sin that I had in my life. Things like a bitter tongue that I would unleash on people all too often, lust that just perpetually was a problem through a large part of my life. Uh, it, it didn't get heavy enough for me to despair and do something crazy like tell God the truth about what was going on with me. But nonetheless, God's hand was there and the weight of it, eventually even somebody as dense as me recognized it. Sin that isn't confessed to God oppresses us is what these verses are saying. The paycheck for sin, when we go to, to our, our job as sin machines, whether we feel good or bad about the sins that we're committing, the paycheck we get is death. What happens next? 
Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What did verse 1 say? Happy is the one whose sins are covered. But obviously, happiness doesn't come from when I do the covering or hiding on my own. Uh, God has to cover it properly. And look, Hiding is universal. A Western person goes, oh no, I missed the mark. I didn't follow the rule. I, I didn't abide by the standard. And so I'm a failure and I need to hide that. And the Eastern person is dealing more with an honor shame situation. And they say, well, if anybody finds out about this sin, I will be shamed. My family will be shamed. My community will be shamed. The person in authority over me will be shamed. And so both kinds of culture lead someone to want to hide wrongdoing and sin. And so our culture doesn't help us in getting what the psalmist is getting at. I acknowledge that God forgives. I stop hiding my sin. And God does a thing I could never do. He removes the guilt that I feel that he didn't give me the guilt of that sin. I acknowledge God forgives. I stop hiding. He takes care of the guilt. Verses six and seven, therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Unconfessed sin is dangerous. It's, it's floodwaters rising. Maybe they're slow, but they're inevitable. They're not feeble. They're strong. They're going to oppress us and take us away unless we have protection, unless we have shelter. Sin has consequences that only get worse as time goes on. And so God offers his people the only effective protection. Why wouldn't we take up God on this offer, this amazing offer of forgiveness, of protection, of a place to be? Why would we face flooding when we can be under his protecting hand instead of the weight making us aware of the weight of our sin. God goes on to step into this, this psalm and give an answer. Verse 8 through 10, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. What a wonderful promise that is. God says, choose to come to me for counsel, for protection, and even for love. Don't resist this offer. Don't try to declare independence from your maker and from your judge who wants to be your loving father, the only one who can do it. How does this psalm end? Rejoice in the Lord, the psalmist then concludes, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, did we start upright in heart? No, we didn't start upright in heart. We started sinful, but we confessed it to God and he took care of it. <sighs> How can you be happy in life? Can you be happy in this life? Yes, this Hebrew song says, Gladness and rejoicing are part of relationship with God. The intimacy and the security of that relationship 
they fuel our happiness. They fuel our well-being. This psalm is about how confessing to God strengthens that relationship and sustains us. It's the opposite of wasting away. It is a true blessedness, a giving of life. And God who knows you can be known. God who loves you can be loved. He can be trusted with your deepest secrets and your most shameful feelings and experiences. That is such good news for us. But most of us, look, we're not the nation of Israel. We don't have this song memorized. We don't typically even sing songs this complicated. So what does the New Testament teach about confession? Well, that's an interesting question because from the very beginning of the New Testament story, it's talking about confession. Mark, for example, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, says this about John the baptizer. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. How do you know? Because he doesn't, he's so last, he doesn't even appear in the Old Testament. He appears only in the New Testament, uh, predicted in the Old Testament. And he comes with this ministry of confession of sins as part of making a way for Jesus as the ultimate solution to the problem of sin. So he's calling from people to recognize and turn aside from their sin. So it's woven into the very foundations of the New Testament story. But what's interesting is that John and his disciples, their ministry ends with this confession of sin and with baptism and perhaps trying to do good. But after Jesus, something else happens. There becomes a development in what people are able to take on board and what they understand as sinful and how they're transformed by the new creation, by the work of the Spirit guiding it. So uh, an extreme example, I'd say, of this is in Acts chapter 18. There are these seven sons of Siva. It's that story where these, these guys, they're not Christians. They're sons of the high priest. And they're, they've got an exorcism thing that they do. And they go to cast out an evil spirit and they don't they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They don't even have a relationship with Paul. But what they say is, uh, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, and they try to cast out the evil spirit. And the evil spirit is completely unimpressed by, you know, these dudes. And as a consequence, he jumps on them, he beats the clothes off of them, and they run out bleeding and naked. Okay, what is the response in the region? Acts 18, 17 through 20 says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, this is the broader community. It's not the believers. It's, you know, the whole town. They were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Okay, there's something about this Jesus. Paul can cast out demons in his name. Uh, these guys can't. Many of those who believe, now we're changing from the surrounding community to the believers within the community, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Okay, 
it's a little hard to tell for sure what's going on, but it sure sounds like what happened was as this issue gets brought up and becomes publicized, these formerly pagan, just brand new Christians realize, hey, sorcery and dabbling with evil spirits isn't okay with God. And so we've been sinning and we bought a bunch of paraphernalia to help us sin better. And now that we know, we're going to destroy that at great expense to ourselves. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and in power. What did these new believers do as they learned, as they understood what God likes and doesn't like? They examined themselves and they said, wow, we are breaking God's intention for how the world is supposed to work and for sure how his people are supposed to live. And they do something about it. They repented they change direction after confessing their wrongdoing. What does that mean as the church grew? Well, let's hear what James says church life ought to be like in the New Testament churches that he's writing to. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. We're expressing what's going on. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We're participating with each other in ministry in, in the church. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. Who's doing the work? God is, as the ministry is being done by the people one for another. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Oh, if they beg hard enough, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Okay, so the, these are verses near the end of a letter written by Jesus's half-brother James to scattered churches talking about what he's expecting of how they're going to behave. Confess your sins to each other is one of the steps of self-care of the church. Now, confession is primarily an action between you and God. So why does James suggest this confessing to one another? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had some ideas about that as he described how to have a community of believers together in pre-war Nazi Germany, as it turned out. Uh, he said two things that I want to connect here. The first is, in the presence of a psychologist, I can only be sick. In the presence of another Christian, I can be a sinner. And the second thing is, sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear the community apart. So the first thing is about uh, my condition, and the second thing is about us connecting together. And these are two reasons. So another believer can remind you that you are known and loved by God. They can point you to the forgiveness that God offers you in Christ. A psychologist can only address your wrong thinking or your wrong behavior and seek an underlying cause and attempt to address that. And boy, that could be really useful in a lot of cases. But even if you're sick, you and I, in our original state, are absolutely sinners continuing to sin. And so we've got a deeper problem than just our sickness, just our bad past experiences, just our repressed feelings. 
The second thing that Bonhoeffer is talking about is that sin has other consequences in a community of faith and confession of sin to relevant people defangs that sin. It's like an antitoxin or an antivenin. So this is a a good piece of guidance to the church to, to know that there's an element of confession among believers that's to be expected in church life. But probably the clearest explanation of confession in a New Testament context is from John's first letter. So 1 John, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So John, the disciple that Jesus loved, shares this declaration that the perfect God purifies us from our sin by the blood of Jesus, the God-man. God has equipped us in this situation for everything we need to deal with the sin problem. Verse 8 continues, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Do we confess and beg God for forgiveness? No, we confess and according to John, we get to be expectant and confident that God is going to forgive us because of his character, not because of the strength of our appeal, because he is faithful and just and capable, not just to forgive, but to purify. And we need that purification because sin isn't a passive thing that we pick up and take down sort of at our pleasure. It's there. Uh, I think one of the ways that this comes most home is the way that God describes it back in Genesis when uh, he's talking to Cain, who is looking downcast after his sacrifice isn't accepted and his brother Abel's is. And God says, Genesis 4, 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God personifies sin here. It's actively seeking to own you. It's sort of like Peter's description of Satan roaming around like a lion seeking to devour people. There's this active enemy that wants our wasting, that wants our destruction, that wants the opposite of what God wants. And gosh, we've we've got a real problem. And the beauty of the gospel, I think, in this context of sin wants to be my master and I seem to be defenseless against it, What happened to Cain? He still sinned egregiously after he got that warning from God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6, 14, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The law could never produce the kind of sinlessness that we need. Guess what? We don't have to be enslaved to sin. We don't have to be under its control. We have a new master who, according to David's song, can hear our confession, 
even though it's sin against him and can remain in loving relationship with us, why would we opt for a master that wants to devour us instead? And yet that's not the message that we receive all around us. Sin isn't something we want to admit to. We want to hide it. We want to deny it when others confront us about it. We want to deny it to ourselves when we notice it. And sin itself will never move us to confess and seek forgiveness because it's on the attack seeking to destroy us. Uh, I'll just quote Townsend and Cloud here. One can't fix something under the attack of guilt. Guilt is the wrong tool to move us to true repentance. It's the wrong tool to move us to understand the loving kindness of God in Christ. And so something has to be done about sin because its consequences are crippling, even for those who are redeemed. But that something doesn't come about because of guilt. It is provided freely instead by God. It's powered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's verified by scripture, and it's proven again and again by the examples of God's people as he is faithful. So experiencing the joy of confession requires receiving the gospel, knowing what God says sin is, and being connected to other believers in a gathering. Why that last part? Because one of the things that we need to be able to do is confess our interpersonal sin in a way that's going to defang it the way that James was talking about. Okay, normally we don't go in for a lot of, here's how to apply the teaching of scripture on this. We are trusting that the word, which is active and alive, and it's going to penetrate deeper than a a sermon can, that it's going to go places and you're going to be able to respond by the power of the Holy Spirit in the way that suits you and your situation and where you are. However, it's not wrong to suggest some applications. I think it's only wrong if you decide the thing you have to do is what I'm suggesting. So these are only starter applications. And I do I want to ask you to think about How can you make confession a more integral part of your daily life? I'm going to give you some suggestions of how that might happen. You can use them. You can hybridize them. You can come up with something altogether different. So the first comes from a guy whose most famous book was called Confessions. And his suggestion is to journal your confessions. Okay, so literally every day, write down what you confess to God. What's the advantage of that? Well, it, it, it's a way of holding yourself accountable to be doing this, to be paying attention, to be keeping a record. What good is the record? If God is covering it up, why would I want a record? Well, I want a record because there's no condemnation for me in Christ for what used to happen. And so I want to know patterns that have been broken by God's power in my life. And if I see something was besetting me every day two months ago, and now it's tapered down to twice a week, That's actual progress, even if it hasn't disappeared altogether. On the other hand, if I find that I've got certain sins that I'm writing down that I confess to God on Friday afternoon and others on Monday morning, I might have contexts where I need to be more careful, more aware about, am I relying on God in these circumstances or am I trying to run my own show? All right, next, 
confess our sins to a trustworthy believer. This one comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was writing a book talking about how to have this tight-knit community that was attempting to train pastors in the time that Nazi Germany was oppressing them. Uh, trustworthy in this case doesn't just mean not a gossip, even though it definitely means that. It means at least that, but it means more. It means somebody who knows a bit about what God says about who he is in his word. Uh, so they know it's true and they can show you that it's true. Somebody who knows a bit about what God says is sinful, that he's called out in his word as being wrong in, in head, in heart, in action, in word. It's someone who embraces the gospel that's the basis for our ongoing engagement with God and our internal engagement with God through the Christ who lived in a way that was sinless who laid down his life for us, and then God gave it back to him again. It also means someone who can handle the confession that you're going to give them. So there are things that I don't confess to a certain person because maybe it's in an area where they're going to be really upset or they wouldn't understand it all and somebody else would. But somebody who's who's going to be appropriately hear that. And it means somebody who themselves are practicing confession. So don't hear confessions from other people if you aren't practicing confession yourself. Bonhoeffer spends a bit of time talking about how this, this takes you out of the cycle of submitting your sin to God on a regular basis and experiencing his forgiveness. And that's a thing in this dynamic that you set up if you're not participating where other people confess to God and you're somehow outside that. And none of us are outside that. Next one, confess whenever you substitute your will for God's and then thank him. So each time, Lynn Fox says, you substitute your will for God's, which will likely be many times in a day, just be honest with God, confess, and then follow that confession with a thank you because we need the reminder that he is going to forgive that. In fact, he has already forgiven that he has made us whole in Christ. And then go on to whatever the day holds with a sense of freedom from that sin and with the knowledge that you and the Lord are in agreement about what that issue was. And as far as you know, in every way at that point. All right. The next one comes from a Lutheran pastor in town that I spoke to about this because I wanted to get his take on, on what confession look like because they have a more formal practice in their church. So what, what he said that I'll share with you is at what point does the law convict you and how does the gospel fix that in Christ? So the law, he suggests just taking the Ten Commandments, a, a summary of the law that Moses brought down from God to the people and say, where does this convict me? Ooh, I was just talking about how somebody was going to do something wrong and I realized I was bearing false witness against them because that wasn't their response at all. They had a totally godly response and I sold them short to somebody else. I've got to first confess that to God and in a situation like that, I'm probably going to go talk to the person that I told the thing about. Uh, what Steve is saying is, look at the law not as any means to salvation, but as a cross-examiner. What's going on in my life that 
that is sin that it calls out. And now I get to look at in Christ, how is it fixed? How has Christ set me free from the fact that I bore false witness? Jesus Christ lived a, a life in which he bore no false witness against anyone. And by his injuries, I am made whole. God's intention was for me to be able to confess that and be forgiven of it. And I am forgiven. I'm so grateful for that. Next one is from my bride. Learn what God says about who you are in Christ so you know what is true. And I'm breaking up a little bit here because Karen is the woman she is today because she has lived this for years. We used to have little picture frames all over the house with little bits of scripture that were hitting right where she lived because she grew up with a bunch of false messages told to her. She grew into an adulthood and still heard false messages and believed them and incorporated them without knowing it into her understanding of the world and of God. And it was only by his word coming alive for her and repetition after repetition of, wait, no, this thing I think about myself, God says in Christ, that's a lie. That sin doesn't define me. Jesus's perfection defines me. Oh my gosh. She is a different woman and it is amazing. I am so grateful for how she's been empowered to walk because she's gone through this practice. But it required her to learn a lot of scripture that talks about who God is and about who she is in Christ and be able and willing to go back to it again and again and again until it really took root in her heart. Ha, <sighs> okay. Townsend and Cloud, one more time. Guilt is self-directed. Godly sorrow is other-directed. Guilt, uh, it's, it's not a, a good tool. It doesn't, it doesn't move you where you need to be, so God doesn't motivate you by guilt. He wants to make you aware of your sin and enable you to confess it to him and repent, to turn away from it. So if you're feeling guilty, just know that's not a feeling that came from God that's different than sorrowing over the consequences of your sin, especially for other people. That kind of godly sorrow and understanding of, I've been forgiven of this, but it has waves and consequences, including on other people. That's godly to understand that. Living in guilt is not God's intention for you. He wants you to confess and he forgives Last one's from me. Don't confuse confession with counseling. You go, what, what's that about, Mike? Well, confession's about agreeing with God that my attitudes are impure, my actions are selfish. It's about calling what I'm doing or thinking or saying by the same name that God calls it, whatever that is. Counseling, on the other hand, is about pointing people to Jesus and helping them redirect their thoughts and their beliefs and their feelings and their actions into harmony with who he is, what he's done, and who we are in him. And you can see that there are things that relate these two things, but they're not the same. And so even though you can confess to God with another person present, don't turn that confession into something else. Uh, if you are in Christ, you have received your forgiveness for the sin you confessed. And you might still separately want to seek somebody to redirect your focus to Christ, that's perfectly reasonable. But 
That isn't necessary for the confession and forgiveness part of things. And importantly, if you're the person who's going to provide the counseling, even completely informal counseling, um, remember not to do that if you're hearing a confession. If all you're intending to do is hear a confession, then your job is to hear it and understand what they're saying and then tell them that God has forgiven them in Christ. If they're in Christ, the truth of what they've said, harmonizing with what God has said, is all that's necessary. So don't be a mentor. Don't make suggestions. Don't turn it into a coaching session. You're just reflecting God's love and forgiveness for them for the sin that they've confessed. Dealing with its consequences is a different thing. Separate that out. Confession is primarily about agreeing with God uh, about who we are, what our motives are, what we're thinking, what we do, and it's relational with God before it's anything else. That's the end result. And I've mentioned before a formative time in my ministry when a pastor who was disconnected with others, including peers, couldn't go at anybody and he had marriage problems. He gave up on his marriage. He began a close friendship with his assistant. He filed for divorce and resigned from the church, ultimately married the assistant. What happened? Well, his testimony was no longer one that God is faithful through everything because he couldn't go talk in the early stages of this situation with somebody who could say, you know, you have a difficult marriage. How is God saying that you, you need to ask for forgiveness here? You've confessed wrong feelings about your wife. You've confessed wrong feelings about your assistant. You've confessed that you are frustrated with God not releasing you from your marriage. Are you forgiven for that? Now what are you going to do? He couldn't confide in anyone. He hid. And as a consequence, it ran downhill with no intervention. So is there a way in which you know you're not in harmony with God? Is there isolation that you know is happening with you right now that in all of this isolating circumstance that we're in is really causing you problem? Uh, there are probably things going on in your life, things that you need to confess where you're not on the same page with God that I don't know anything about. But God, trust me, knows everything about it. More than I do, but more than you do as well. So I'm just going to wait here for a minute. I'm going to be awkward about it probably while you think about it. Think about what you have to confess to God where you're not on the same page, where you want to hide someplace that you missed the mark, someplace where you're rebelling against him, someplace where the two of you don't agree on something that is. And while you think of that, just remember that our Heavenly Father, it's important to him that you confess. It's important to me that you do that. It's important for you that that happens. And if something becomes clear to you while we wait, confess it. Tell God he's the most important one to hear it. Do it right now.
okay, that wasn't really that long and you may have come up with nothing. You may have come up with half of something. You may have come up with a few things and you're not done. Wherever you are in the process, what you have just confessed through Jesus's work, God has forgiven. What you have just confessed, God has forgiven and it was possible because Jesus made it so. David knew how this worked because he lived it, but you get to experience it so much more fully than he did because you come after Christ and he came before Christ and only understood a shadow of what you know. And you need to know, you need to believe what you have confessed through Jesus's work, God has forgiven. You didn't earn that forgiveness. It was a gift from God. He has made you clean and new, and he will forgive you later today when you sin in exactly the same way, when you fall into a new sin altogether, when you trot out something else that, that's in the routine. He's going to forgive you as you confess those. Acknowledge again that you were wrong and he was right. Call it what it is and he will forgive you. Let me pray. God, I am so grateful that you didn't leave us to just try to figure this out on our own, but you told David how to approach you to confess and be forgiven. Even somebody who did uh, as, as noticeable, as, as significant a sin as adultery and murder. And yet we know that, that we stray from your perfection all the time. And we want to agree with you because we want to live without guilt in the forgiveness that you provide. And so I pray that you will allow each person who's listening to this, who's watching this video, who's thinking about what they've heard, would you be active to bring to mind what needs to change and I pray that whether it comes out by circumstance or by reading your word or by something somebody else teaches them from your word, I pray that what would happen would be that they would, oh, this feels horrible and I want to hide it. But instead, I can just give it to you, God, and you're going to take care of it. And I thank you that you are in the business of taking care of our sin now and forever, would you give us a right relationship with you today because you have taken away our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.